Let's start. Did you start it, Doc? I was going to read a poem tonight to start. I'm going to cut the poem out because I want to get going. I'm really sorry. I want to get us back in a movie, Dick. Um, let's say a prayer. And Karen, you've got to. Re- um, as I was walking into class, Connie texted me and said that she's not going to make it to class because she's helping her niece whose car stopped and she has not help. And she asked that we pray that she get a car started. Say the last part. She asked that we pray that she can get the. They can get the car started. She was helping out her niece. Her niece. Car problems and had no one else to help. So that's a bad situation. Gosh. She doesn't have enough to do. I know, right? Bless her heart. She's got a big heart. I've got another prayer. Any, any other? Um, Michelle, thanks for trying to help too. Oh, I was just, yeah. This young man is—I don't know what he does, but he works magic all the time. He knew immediately what to do, and I couldn't. He goes too fast for me to follow. And any other prayer requests? for Tom, my grandchildren's other very much loved grandfather who is having uh, surgery tomorrow for recurrence of his cancer. Tom. Tom. How old is he? He is almost 60. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a good man. Yeah, he's younger. Yes, he is is younger. And he is a retired policeman and he raises cattle. So not only are they facing this health crisis, but their animals that still have to be taken care of. Yeah. They just got an awful lot on their plate right now. Boy, Let's it sounds like it's that way for everybody. Um, Betsy Raffetta. Sorry? Another one is Betsy Raffetta. She belongs here to our church. Say again. Betsy Raffetta. What's going on? She's having another surgery. She's surgery? Had, she's had cancer for the last five years, in and out many chemotherapy. She's done well, but she's going in for another surgery. I have a friend who was just diagnosed with cancer. My goodness. What's his or her name? Jana. Jana? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, gosh, help me out with names here, everybody. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Before we begin as a part of a prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you this day, for your presence through the day. Um, I want to offer a special thanksgiving on behalf of all of us coming in the Easter octave. Um, Every year, you and your church um, invite us in to be reborn again. That must sound silly to a to anybody's ears except Nicodemus's to be born again but um, it's not rebirth at Christmas it's being reborn out of a crucifixion um, to come to life again out of a death there's no more amazing thing that's ever been done or ever will be done than for you as our God you made us all created all of us um, You are the source of all of us. You went to a cross to atone for a sin we couldn't. Um, To bring justice um, in answer to our sin against your father in a way that we could not. Um, How extraordinary. Um, I offer thanksgiving for all the efforts we made during Lent 
to discipline ourselves to try to be better so um, we would know a greater joy when Easter came. I'd like to ask a special blessing for all of us that we continue what we began, whatever in the way of self-discipline and penance, that we take seriously your call to um, bear crosses, to learn to die to ourselves in order to be reborn. So um, for the new life that was given to us this Easter, let it not just be in our heads, help us to make it real, to stand with you unafraid to bring you to our world. My great hope in the work that we're doing here is that we learn to make a better defense of our faith, that um, we be enriched, see how good it is, how great it is, that we can relate to more things in our world, um, more easily to your greatness, all that you've done by reading these works, be strengthened in our faith and be able to take it to our world, to witness to you. So for um, this last Easter, for all that we began, uh, all that came to its conclusion on Easter Day. Um, thank you. Um, I want to offer a special prayer for uh, Michael's daughter. Mike, what's her name? Mary. Mary. Be with Mary. Um, it's at a time, it's a threshold time for her. Guide her. Um, stay with her. Um, Tom, be with him in... Um, whatever lies ahead for him in, um, in the way of treatment for the cancer. Cheryl, I'm sorry, the name of... Betsy. Betsy? Betsy, yeah. Betsy be with her as well in her struggle with cancer. Um, <laughs> be with Connie. Connie, this is partly um, to you because I'm assuming you're going to listen to this. Um, we're sorry you're not here. Um, and we hope that things go well in your efforts to help out your cousin, your cousin, niece. niece. Um, um, but be well and um, stay with Moby Dick until you get through it, okay? Um, there's a lot there for us. And Jana, Jana um, cancer, yeah. Be with Jana. Um, God, a lot is going on with illnesses this season. I am going to. I ask for a special prayer, too, for our family, Thanksgiving, for the reunion we just had, and something of a spirit of renewal for Suzanne and me. <laughs> um, for Easter season, for the um, gathering that we had, ask her a special prayer for Christopher and um, Sienna, all that they're taking on right now, and um, fill their hearts with hope in everything they do. And for Suzanne's sister, Debbie, um, who s started off for Detroit and, and somehow lost a flight, be with her this night. Um, if she can get out, help her to get out, and um, if not, um, be with us when she returns home for the night. Whatever happens, um, help us to stay with you. Um, the greatest problem in our life is not our fear of inadequacy. And this is a quote that you know I've given you before. It's that we don't have the courage to receive the joy given to us. You have done more than anybody could ever do to leave us with a joy. 
no matter what goes on in our life, even when we have real struggles that bring us to a point of anger, strengthen us that we hold on to the joy that you offer. That's your promise. That's our faith. Um, strengthen all of us when we approach those weaknesses. Help us to know that most of all in our weaknesses, we can turn to you and find a strength in you to do those things we cannot on our own. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. What happened with that, Mike? If there's nobody online here, I'm here. Let me have it. I'm going to turn it off. If it's let me let me get it. If it's not, I'm going to I'm going to. you to upgrade. Oh, okay. Now it's back. I'm going to. Nobody waiting. So. Um. Okay, let's start. Um, I put I put the notes again online and added some things that you may get that may be different from what you have and you may check them out, but, but I think they're close enough. But, and I, I think I mentioned this before, you know that um, online on our site there are study guides divided down into 20 chapter intervals. The study guides are really helpful. You know, if you'll go on our site um, to Moby Dick, you'll see the study guides. They, they really are good. They're broken down by um, sections of 20 chapters each. And I spend a paragraph, maybe two, um, describing each chapter. So, and I, I, I'm, I'm wary about telling you this because you know how much I, yeah, you know how much I hate uh, cliff notes. Um, I, I don't want to do anything to get you out of the book because it's like the Eucharist. You can know about it in your head, but participating in it is another thing. So when you read the book, obviously you're going to get more out of it. But where you're in a pinch, it's there and it'll help. So um, just remember that because um, we're approaching the end. Um, two quick things tonight just by way of review at the end of the notes you'll see that I asked a couple of questions again um, there's two things I, I want to um, go over by way of review um, just for everybody to hold these things in mind. Remember, Melville and Hawthorne are writing at a time of crisis in American culture. Up until the middle of the 19th century, America was a solidly Christian country, Protestant in its founding. Um, so it was a collection of free churches. There was no establishment of religion, although the early um, founding was theocratic. They, they made the church and politics pretty much one. But gradually as we moved um, away from our foundings towards the Constitution and the Revolution, we disestablished religion because we knew from, from historical experiences what would happen. England had been at war for two or a century, actually a couple of centuries. Presbyterians fighting against the Puritans, the established government. Catholic Church had been um, closed down. So it was really important 
to allow churches to have um, a, um, a support without establishing them as the fixed church of the nation. So people were forced to believe in one thing. So churches sprung up. We think of them as free churches. Um, but in the beginning, the nature of the, our founding was deeply fraught Protestant, and it was based on the fundamental precepts of the Reformation, okay, the Protestant Reformation, 16th, 17th century. And I just want to remind you what those were. One, these are the basic doctrines coming out of the Reformation. The inefficacy of good works. Good works in themselves are not enough. Um, and they wrote that in the face of James' letter affirming good works. Because he said good works are important. Um, faith without charity is empty. The proof of charity is in the good works that we do. But they said good works were in, in, ineffective. They lacked efficacy. Two, predestination of the saved and damned. People were predestined to be saved or damned. That left a pretty, well, wait. So that view in itself darkened the Protestant mind. Because if some people were damned and God is the creator of the human soul, where did, where did that evil come from? The implication is it came from God. That wasn't fleshed out, but, but that's one of the implications of it. That's one of the things that Ahab is trying to face as a man. The idea that he's predestined to damnation or everything is fixed and man has no free will. Um, the primacy of an individual's private faith. Um, sola fidea, faith alone. Um, one of the effects of that doctrine is that it encouraged people to make their private will more important than anybody else. So even though it was meant to bring a humility to people's lives, as a matter of fact, what it did was magnify their pride. Whatever they privately believed would so. And one of the consequences of that belief is the Protestant church began to fragment because what was true for one person was not true for another. And we watched the church break down and is continuing still to break down. And finally, the complete and utter depravity of the body bodies depraved. Remember, the Protestant understanding of the fall um, is that the, the consequences of the fall were complete. Man was ruined. Milton's phrase was all, all corrupt, all depraved. The Catholic understanding had been we were wounded, our free will was intact, we were under the burden of concupiscence, which is, it means a a longing or desire so strong that it can be overwhelming. We all know that. Otherwise, we wouldn't sin. So, um, America's founding was dark. Very, very dark. We'll see that in Moby Dick, and we'll see it when we get to Hawthorne shortly. Okay, But you can see Ahab struggling with almost all of those, but particularly predestination. Okay, um, He believed in that chapter on the whiteness of the whale and Moby Dick, those two chapters, and the early on, they're, they're both important, that um, there's a malice, um, an evil, an, um, an intelligent design. There's an evil at, at the ultimate source of things. 
So whatever goes on in the world here, for it to, for it to have the effect that it is, that so many bad things happen, is an indication of, a, of an evil malice. That, that view is still popular today. Stephen King, who's a famous American writer, all of his, all of his works believe that they're um, convey that, that there's an evil inherent in the world. The Catholic understanding is evil is a deprivation. It's not, an, it's not an active thing, it's a deprivation. People can be evil and do evil things, but nature by itself is not evil. So we're at a turning point in American history and in European history, world history. Up until the 16th century, nature was always understood to be good. Good. Remember Boethius. There is no bad fortune. Nature is good. It was created by God. There is no bad fortune. God is a good God. Where humans commit evil, God is doing something to bring good out of it. Nature is good. When anybody had a war with somebody else, it was always another human being. Achilles with Turnus, Odysseus with the suitors. Where can I go? What have we read? Um, um, Othello with Iago, right? Um, Anthony was Caesar, Anthony and Cleopatra, Anthony was Caesar. Take any play, any work we've read. Whoever the hero is, his nemesis is always another human being. Jane Austen, Elizabeth and Darcy, you know, they do battle with each other until they are humbled. Up until the 19th, 16th, 17th century, nature was good. If there was a nemesis, it was always another human being. That changes at this point because suddenly it's understood that nature itself is inherently evil. And so for Ahab to be wounded by that whale means he wants to, so it's not a human being striking back at another human being who's done him wrong. It's Ahab taking on all of nature. Nature's evil, the whale is a symbol of that evil. He wants to strike back at that. And you know that one of the, probably at the core of Moby Dick is this theme that all of us are wounded. All of us have been wounded. We want to get back. It's on the basis of that fact that all the men on, on board the Pequod join his quest. They want to get back to him. We've all been wounded. People have done us harm. Our childhood very often are filled with wounds. We're, we're innocent. You know, who can defend us when we're children? We're so vulnerable when we're young. So we carry wounds with us. There's this longing to get back. Christ took that away. Um, we either join him to, to do justice, to bring justice to the world, to answer the wrongs, but with a, a charity that's divine. We're called to bring justice to the world, but to bring um, a spirit of denying ourselves, getting, giving up ourselves to bring a love to those efforts that we're not strong enough to do on our own. That's our call. That's our faith. Okay, that's where we were. Now here's my question for the night before we pick up and go through the chapters. It's on the, you have to, I think you're going to have to go online because I put these, these questions on later. When we left last time, I suggested one of the important things for us to be aware of at this point in Moby Dick is this. Evil is gathering. The ship has committed itself to a vengeance quest. Everybody wants to get back at that whale. Um, we had those funny, we've got the shark 
chapter where all the sharks are eating on each other. Um, Ishmael talks about the cannibalism of the world, that things feast on each other. Um, so there's evil in the world, but it's isolated. The world itself is not evil. There's some evil there, but it's not inherently evil in everything. This evil is gathering. Ahab's pushing farther into his quest. We saw the t town Ho, and we had an example of God actually helping a, a guy out to keep him from damning himself. Remember, Steel Kilt was saved. Um, we'll see something not exactly that way, but with a gam that we'll look at tonight, we'll see another instance of something happening with a gam that, that helps fill out this mystery about um, who Moby Dick is. Evil is gathering. But in the midst of all this evil, we've got this character reflecting on everything and finding goodness everywhere. The term that Melville Ahab will use is called linked analogies. Write it down, linked analogies. Now remember, for Ahab, nature's inherently evil. Everything, everything's bad. And if it is, it's because the ultimate source of it is bad. Now let me ask this question, because it's a, it's, you know, it's a good freshman in college question. If everything is joined by linked analogy, what's the one conclusion we, we have to come to about the nature of things. If everything is, can be understood in terms of linked analogies, what conclusion can we draw from that? <clears throat> you know that Ishmael looks at everything and wh whatever he looks at, he sees some connection between that thing and something else, usually good. But all things are linked by analogies, all of them. If they're all linked, what does that say? If all things are linked by analogies, it means they all are related to the same source, or they couldn't all be linked. So one of the things that Ishmael is giving us that was taken away with the Reformation is this sense of being, the being behind all things. Remember, in the Old Testament, Yahweh said, I am that am. He is being itself, all goodness. Uncreated, nobody made him, or or there would have been something before him. He's all being. And everything he created is related back to him. We live in a modern world, a scientific world, that does, takes away those connections. And the Reformation, by saying everything's evil, took away those connections. Right? If everything's inherently evil, it, it implies an evil God. What we're learning from what Ishmael's doing is that all things are linked. And if they are, it means there's a being the source of all things is being with a capital B. Being. It's God. And everything is related to him. Mary's term is a good one. They're all by laws, by beauty, by truth. So while Ahab is pursuing his quest and Stubb is making these silly remarks about, remember um, the Job story? The governor let Satan test um, Job, that's the Job story. And that's, if you've read the Job story, you know it. It begins with Satan coming to God and, and saying, I want to test this guy. You think he's all righteous, but he's not. God says, go ahead and test him. <laughs> God gives Satan permission to test him. 
There, by the way, there's one of the answers to the question, why does God allow evil? To find out who we are, whether we love him or not. So um, Satan takes everything. You know the Job story. He takes away everything. And, but Stubb is comically saying, if Satan gets around me, I'll thump him. Remember, he's, and I was laughing at it because for anybody to think that he can take on Satan is asking for it. So we've got some silliness with respect to religious doctrines, the way people read the Bible. Stubb is not the best, not the most reliable, you know, reader of the Bible. Um, so while all of this is going on, this religious quest, Ishmael is doing this. So the way that I put it was, remember I said, what's going on? And everybody was pretty much saying nothing. That's not true. What we're seeing in Ishmael is the action of the mind. It's the worth of the mind reflecting on things. It's one step away from prayer or meditation. Yeah, he's just, he's learning to open himself to being. But it's the action of the mind. So two actions are in conflict, in tension. One is Ahab's, he wants to kill. The other is Ishmael, he's trying to understand. And very slowly, we, what happens, the effect of that effort is, he begins to withdraw. There's five conversion points, I'll go into them next week. Peripatias, remember the word peripatia? A turn. There's five turning points. We've already seen a couple of them. Remember in the opening when um, Quiquig was whittling his yoho, and Ishmael said, my splinter heart was melting. He began to fall in love with that man because, because of his goodness. The Presbyterians hated him. Quiquig was a savage, a barbarian. He, he belonged to the unregenerate. He was among the damned. Ishmael found himself becoming fond of him because, he, because of his inherent goodness. So even though Quiquig wasn't a Christian, there was this inherent goodness. So Melville is taking on that whole Protestant world. Completely. Now here's my question that goes to the end of the book. And I don't want to answer it, but I just want to raise it again. You know, because I've already given it away, um, Ishmael's going to survive the wreck. Everybody in the Pequot is going to die. Every single person on that ship is going to die. Um, now, let me, if I can just enlarge on this for a second. There is nobody on that, on that boat coming close to Ishmael in the way of reflection. Nobody's giving a thought to what's going on. They're all a part of that quest. They want to get back. A wound has been given. They want to get back because everybody's been wounded. Nobody's thinking about anything. They're going along with this quest. If we look at the ship as an image of a culture, a whole nation, a whole nation is, is committed to this enterprise to make money, to bring security back, to make it possible for people to live. It's an image of America, an enterprising country. But it's raping, we've seen, nature. It's killing sharks and, or I mean, whales and... So in one sense, the ship is an image of a nation, an, um, an industrial world in its relationship to nature, what it does with nature. And nobody's reflecting on anything, and they're all gonna die. 
No, wait, I want just I don't want to answer. I, I'm, I want to just throw this out. I want to talk about it right now. You have to wait. Um, nobody's reflecting on anything. Ahab does, but it's all negative. Starbuck every once in a while reflects, but doesn't come close to what um, Ishmael's doing. Here's my question. I don't, want to, I don't want to answer. I just want to leave this with you as you move towards the end of the book. Was Ishmael already like this? Remember when the book begins, he said, I reached a point in my life where I want to, when I want to bring up the end of funeral lines or pull out a musket and, you know, shoot somebody. Then it's time to go to sea. Was he always reflective? Or is the reflection that we're watching in him the result of what happened in the crash that he survived? Which made him go back and reflect on everything that happened so then he could see in retrospect when he was going back all these things had meaning. Now that's a really important question. Is everybody understanding the question? Was he always this way so that when he began the, ju the journey he was already reflecting? I don't think so because we talked about it. Where did the cytology chapter occur on the journey? Lots of things that he gives us are not things that occurred on the journey. It's his mind thinking. The cytology chapter is, is his description of whale. Or the pictures, the stories of whales that he gives. Remember that I went over last week? He's got all those chapters on exaggerated stories, good stories. Did they occur on the journey? Or is that a reflection that he comes to when he looks back? Now here's the reason I wanted to ask that question. It seems pretty clear that Ishmael, that what happened at the end, his surviving this ordeal, was like the Jonah story. It put him in a position of having to witness, and you know the meaning of that word, it means to bear the truth of something for Christ. Um, surviving that ordeal put him in a position of having to witness what happened. So he has to go back. So that what we're watching is Ishmael going back and telling us this journey, this story that took place, everybody out to get Moby Dick. But he's reflecting going back to see the meaning of things he didn't see when he was younger. Now, if that's true, and we'll wait to see it when we get to the end, I'll ask it again. If it's true, if any of us have ever experienced a mystery, a miracle in our lives, have we witnessed to it? I don't want to answer I want to raise the question. If we've, if we've experienced a miracle, something was given to us, have we done what Jonah did? Have we witnessed it? Have we gone back to the world to bring Christ to the world, to flesh things out, to take everything that's been given to us to help us the way Jonah did in the Jonah story and the way Ishmael is doing in this story? Just hold on to that question, okay? as you go through the book, because we'll, we'll finish the book in the next couple of weeks. Okay, let's... Any questions before we start? That don't ask for any definitive answers yet. When you said it was only Ishmael, I saw Starbuck the whole time, though. Looking and questioning things. Who? Starbuck. Starbuck, yeah. I saw him questioning things, but yet he was so loyal to Ahab. But he's looking at his crew going, this isn't, this isn't like any other time. Yeah. And, and I saw like Ishmael as being the one, like, like he's, he's the outsider looking in. He's there. 
I've been in situations like that. You, 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 you see the things going on, you, have, you can't do a thing about it, you're watching it happen, and you're not sure what you're going to do next, but you, you see it unfolding before you. This isn't good, okay? And you, and you don't want to be part of it, okay? So I see that with Ishmael, but I also see Starbucks seeing, but he was at a different, because he was part of the crew. He was the one who ran. So is Ishmael. Ishmael signed up. Who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But remember, yeah. He wasn't so, he was just so uh, carefree in the sense compared to the crew. Ishmael is a part of the queue. It's just really important to hold on to these things. Ishmael said very clearly, my voice was louder than anybody else's. When Ahab called them together and got everybody united behind his quest, Ishmael was as much a part of it as anybody. Remember the difference between the men, and there's an allegorical importance to these distinctions. All the, the, the mates, um, Starbuck, Stubb, and Flask, are all white, educated, slightly more intelligent, and in rank, Starbuck's more intelligent than Stubb, Stubb's more intelligent. Um, the harpooners are natives. They're not educated. They don't, they don't reflect on things. They're instinctive. They do things instinctively. That's what makes Queequeg so so amazing, what he does with that kid or what he does with the harpoon. So we're watching, to, to enlarge this, I mean, to put it back in the context, this is what I'm asking everybody to see. We're watching a ship go down at the end. And we're watching, Ishmael is laying this ship bare for us. We're seeing every aspect of it. The whole enterprise is being laid bare. That whole ship, if it's an image of the nation, we're watching a nation go to ruin over this issue of justice. Everybody answers it in the wrong way. But that's at the heart of whatever. The whole enterprise is to use nature to, um, to survive, to make a living, you know. But at the heart of this, spiritually, inwardly, morally, is this wound that everybody identifies with. If that's an image of the nation, that ship is going down. There's only one person who comes back to tell that story. So part of the question I'm asking is, why did Melville do that? Is he being insensitive? Is he being unnecessarily cruel about deaths? You, know, you said earlier when we started, you were avoiding the end because all these people are going to die. Is he being unnecessarily negative? If this is an image of a culture at a time of crisis losing its identity, it's getting caught up in this thing, they're all going to die, except one man. Why was he spared? How are we to read that? So remember, last time when we left, I said there, there's a conflict. Two forms of action. One of them is that a man is setting out to get back at somebody, to answer his wounds. The other one is, is the action of the mind, reflecting and finding all things linked by analogies, which, it, which implies a source, a common source. Mary used the word law and truth. If she added beauty, she would have been right too. Okay, can we, can we start? Remember, my claim is this work is prophetic. 
Scarlet Letter and Moby Dick are being written at a time of crisis in America, that our Christian roots are being lost, they're giving way to a new world, a scientific world on the one hand, and a dark Protestant world on the other. It's very, very dark. Man is horrible, he's depraved. If you look at DVDs coming out, you know, weekly in Redbox or Netflix, 75, easily 75-80% of them are horror stories. They all deal with horrors. Um, there's very little that's, you know, like The Judge or Departures, the movies. We, there's very little coming out that are, you know, that are really good stories. Um, so here we are. Let's um, pick up where we left off. Um, in chapter 69, um, Ishmael describes cutting off the head and letting the body go and describes it um, in terms of a funeral. This is in 69. Um. <coughs> in chapter 69, on the very first page, he says, Nor is this the end. Desecrated as the body is, a vengeful ghost survives and hovers over it to, to scare. Espied by some timid man of war or blundering discovery vessel from afar, when the distance um, obscuring, uh, the, obscuring the swarming fowls nevertheless still shows the white mass floating. So even when they cut the body off, it floats out to sea, and some mariners mistake it for an island and actually put it down as a map. But he says in that in that um, in the passage before the one I read. O horrible vulturism of earth, from which not the mightiest whale is free. As soon as that body set forth, the whole sea attacks it. It's another instance of the shark massacre. He says on 370, the end of chapter 69, Thus while in life the great whale's body may have been a real terror to his foes, in his death his ghost becomes a powerless panic to the world. It's like something's there. Very often the consequences of what we do follow us. Okay. The next chapter, the Sphinx, chapter 70, is a wonderful chapter. Ahab's on deck meditating what just happened. Because remember the sperm whale that they've had, they've cleaned, they've gotten all the spermaceti out of the head that they wanted. They cut the body off and let it go. Ahab is meditating on this because like Ishmael, he, he's a thinker. He thinks about things. In the middle of, of this chapter, chapter 70, he says, or Ishmael, it was a black and hooded head and hanging there in the midst of so intense a calm it seemed the sphinxes in the desert. And Ahab looks at it and says, speak thou vast and venerable head, which though ungarnished with a beard, yet here and there lookest hoary, with mosses, speak, mighty head, and tell us the secret thing that, um, that is in thee. Of all divers, thou hast dived the deepest. Ahab's, what's so amazing about this, what's so amazing about this book, Christianity is at the heart of this. It's, it's a Reformation form of Christianity. It's what's, this is what emerged out of the Reformation. But the Christian religion has gone on for what this is, 19 centuries, yeah? We're in the 19th century. But we're at a point of, ter of term. Remember I told you last week that this woman had written this book called Post-Human? 
We're beyond anything human. We, nature's corrupt. We can do it whatever we want. The science has no sense of a god. Melville's writing right at that point of crisis. He's taken this man, which is a noble man. This man is a good man. He's noble. He's heroic. He has a good sense of things. A whale took off his leg, and he's angry and wants to get back. But it's, it's always important to remember, all tragic heroes are noble. They have to be to feel the fall, what takes place when they, you know, when they go through this tragic action, There's, when their sin takes over. Nobody except Ishmael has the kind of profundity of thought that Ahab has. He looks at this head and he's muttering and he says, Yet here and there lookest hoary with mosses, speak, mighty head, and tell us the secret things that is in thee. Of all divers thou hast dived the deepest. That head upon which the upper sun now gleams has moved amid the world's foundations, where unrecorded names and navvies rust, and untold hopes and anchors rot, when her murderous hold this frigate earth is ballasted with bones of millions of the drowned. There in that awful water land, there was thy most familiar home. Thou hast been where bell or diver never went, hast slept by many a sailor's side, where sleepless mothers would give their lives to lay them down. Thou sawest the locked lovers when leaping from their flaming ship heart to heart, they sank beneath the exulting wave, true to each other when heaven seemed false to them. Go on, go down a few lines, O head, Thou hast seen enough to split the planets and make an infidel of Abraham, and not one syllable is thine. Can flesh that out. What does he mean by that? Is everybody clear in that? Would make an infidel of Abraham? Why is that so? Why does he say that? Make an infidel, an infidel of Abraham? By the way, he's our father, right? In faith. The whole Jewish religion came out of him, and Christianity was based on that. So all of us, Christian, Jewish, have our roots in Abraham. And he's saying... He's saying that we all see bad and evil things, that if Abraham had seen all those evil Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, had thou seen enough to split the planets and make an infidel of Abraham? Remember, all of nature was good. Till, um, till the 17th century. And then... So men fought against men. Now our whole, our whole metaphysical view of the world has changed. And it's changed enough to make an infidel of Abraham. And not one syllable is thine. Go down a few lines. Better and better man would now St. Paul would come along that way and to my breezelessness bring his breeze. O nature and O soul of man, how far beyond all utterance are your linked analogies not the smallest atom stirs or lives in matter, but has its cunning duplicate in mind. Is everybody okay? Um, if God made everything, then the source of everything is Him, and everything is linked. In the modern mind, according to Descartes and Kant, the, we can't know the world. All we can know is the ideas in our head. So we've lost contact with the world. But Previously, the traditional view is everything's linked by analogies. There has to be some correspondence between our mind and things, or otherwise we couldn't know them. Okay? And Ahab's mind sees only 
the worst. Say? The, I said Ahab's mind sees only, only the worst, worst, the darkest. This, yes. All of these things that he's talking about that the whale. Yeah. Seen, yes. Like yes. Yeah. 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 Go on to the next chapter. I'm going to just. I'm going to touch on some things here. In the Jeroboam story, this is the next gam. A ship pulls up, and we learn, um, we learn that something about this ship from one of the members of the town hall. Because remember, the captains didn't learn, but the ship's crew did. What they learned was not only something about steel kilt, the steel kilt story, but this story about Gabriel. Gabriel belongs to the Shaker religion, and he sees himself as the angel Gabriel. He has this power of revelation to prophecy things. And um, because sailors are so superstitious that he threatened them, and everybody began to cower, um, the captain threatened to throw him overboard, and the ship's crew revolted and said, if you do, we're going to take over the ship. So even the captain gave way. So in one sense, Gabriel has command of the ship, even though there's a captain. And what we learn um, is when the, sh when the captain is in his rowboat going to meet Ahab, is that Macy, the, the first mate of the Jeroboam, set out to get Moby Dick. Gabriel warned him not to do it, because he, but he, because he believed, now hold on to this, he believed that Moby Dick was um, the incarnate shaker god. So here's a superstition blown up that much. So we had the town hoe. Now we've got the Jeroboam. Remember in the town hoe we saw God doing something that actually saved a man's life. Here we're getting a story of a ship relating um, the story of Moby Dick because of what happened to the uh, mate. The mate set off. Gabriel told him not to go. He went anyway. And he was the one guy that got killed. He was dumped overboard and Moby Dick killed him. And um, when Gabriel learns that Ahab is setting out for Moby Dick, he warns him not to go, threatens him. So, and Ahab's not going to be dissuaded by this because on the surface, Gabriel is a nut, he's a lunatic. But he's got this religious fervor to him and everybody believes. So we're watching a superstition take hold of the religious imagination. That's how far bad it can go. Um, Ahab remembers that there's a letter for somebody on the Jeroboam. He pulls it out and it happens to be for Macy. He gives it, um, he's about to give it to him. Gabriel stabs it with a knife and throws it back and it lands at Melville's, or I mean uh, Ahab's feet. So it's almost like another warning that Ahab should um, stop desist, not go through with this. Go ahead. Cheryl, talk up. Can you, can you speak up a little bit, please? Well, I keep asking each week about this in my head, and I'm just going to try. You know, why did Melville paint this whale white? Okay, why was he a white whale? And she reminded me of the, the ghostly-like uh, excerpt. And then what you're just saying now makes sense, because if they're so superstitious, it would make sense to make it white and ghostly-like, because I've, I've studied whales for years for different reasons, and there is no such thing as a true white whale. I mean, I suppose there's I think there is. Out there, I think there is. Out there, but not a true white. That doesn't matter here. I mean, he's a white whale. But I mean, he 
Well, yeah. Remember, early on in that, um, when we read the quarter deck chapter, which was the pivotal point of the book, there were those two chapters in which Ishmael was trying to put all of this into context. Remember I suggested that these are, those were set up chapters that he's preparing us. So many of these chapters are set up. I mean, he's, he's helping us to trust him because he's so perceptive. He's trying to show things from different percept or perspectives so that we can trust them. But there were those two chapters, one of them was called Moby Dick and the other one was called The Whiteness of the Whale and both of them were going to that to that fact, who he was and why the whiteness was so important. Because there are white buffaloes, there are white steeds and people get, and there are albinos. You know, that people, they're not natural. They don't fit into the, you know, they're not, they don't belong to a norm, which confers on them some strange sense, some strange meaning. Um, go to the next chapter, it's one of my favorites. Seventy-two, the monk, monkey rope. I love this. This this chapter was actually responsible for what was a major change in me. I, I don't think it took fully, but you know that the monkey rope is that rope that links somebody on board ship to somebody down below cutting out the whale, and he's below water. So Ishmael is above board. The rope is tied around his waist. And at the other end is Queequeg, who's down below, hollowing out the whale. Okay, and there's this description, which is really wonderful. Um, where is that? This is the second page in on page 72. So strongly and metaphysically did I conceive of my situation then that while earnestly watching his motions, I seemed distinctively to perceive that my own individuality was now merged in a joint stock company of two, that my free will had received a mortal wound and that another's mistake or misfortune might plunge innocent me to unmerited disaster and death. I hope everybody's making the connection between this and the wound where we started. Because if you begin life thinking you're innocent <laughs> and you've got to go down because this poor SOB isn't doing what he should do or you know he's not as good as you would like and you're tied to him, then you have to go down too. It, it's probably the finest image of a marriage that I've ever written. Well, it, it, all of us think we're innocent and you know... We, we just want to know which one you are. <laughs> <laughs> both, both. Anyway, here, let me finish because I, I love this was now merged in a joint stock company of two that my free will had received a mortal wound and that another's mistake or misfortune might plunge innocent me into unmerited disaster. That is an undeserved wound. He's better. Why should he have to suffer because of Queequeg's mistakes? You know, he's not talking about the number of times that Queequeg might have saved his life and <laughs> whatever goes on. This is one of the finest chapters on pride that I've ever read in my life. Therefore, I saw that here was a sort of interregnum in providence. Interregnum, the first time I read it, I didn't know the meaning of the word, and now I'll never forget it. It means an interruption, a break. Just, if justice is right, Ishmael would have never had to go down with Queequeg, right? 
he's innocent and good and um, in providence for its even-handed equity never could have sanctioned so gross an injustice and yet still further pondering while well, I jerked him now and then from in between the whale and the ship which would threaten to jam him still further pondering I say I saw that this situation of mine was precisely the situation of every mortal that breathes only in most cases he one way or another has this Siamese connection with the plurality of other mortals if your banker breaks, you snap. I mean, he goes on. If something happens, we're going to have to suffer. So here's his linked analogy. I hope everybody's seen that. Here's this wonderful way he illustrates we're all of this. He's done that a number of times with the blanket and other ones. Let me tell you the funny story. I mean, this is the effect that I had. When I read this, I said to myself, God, it's so true. My pride has been a real concern of mine all of my life. It wasn't a small concern for me then. I had this attitude towards um, driving or flying without seeing how much my pride played an element in it. But, um, but when I read this, I'd, I'd always objected to flying because I always said, um, if I'm gonna die, I want, I want it to be in my hands. I don't wanna go on an airplane. What if God has its sights on one guy on that airplane, I have to go down for him. <laughs> and then I read this thing, I read this thing and I said, what if God had his mind on me and everybody had to go down for, you know. It was a real turning, I mean I love this chapter because it, it's, it, it's such a wonderful example of the way in which we're all tied. So if a bank goes down, we're, you know, and we're going to suffer those wounds and we're going to say, I don't deserve this. You know, and don't forget what I said because you know it's been a fundamental of every, principle of everything I've said. Our call is not to be passive or acquiesce. That, I mean, I had a wonderful discussion with Suzanne's sister's um, daughter and her son about because of a, of a homily at church that I had real, real trouble with. I'm not going to go into it. But it was about unconditional forgiveness. We've talked about this because Shakespeare didn't write a play in which he didn't do this. Does unconditional justice mean you overlook the sin? Dismiss it. Remember, Saint, we've gone over this a lot because it's not a, it's a, to me it's a crucial issue in America. St. Thomas said, Mercy without justice is a disaster. Hold on for because I want to, if this is repeating, bear with me. Be patient for a minute because I just think it's important. Because this is what this is about. Um, mercy implies a law that was broken, a, a wrong was done, right? There's something somebody did that they shouldn't have done. Every act of mercy implies a law. Does doing away with the law make things better? Is that what mercy means? Because if you do away with the law, we've got a lawless world. What it means is you, you don't realize um, the, the, the letter of the law, which is cruel, that's, and that comes from us. You realize its spirit. God laid this out. There's a God. It's a goodness. And, and with Christ, after Christ comes, we're supposed to bring a love that becomes possible for us because we deny ourselves. So justice, mercy doesn't mean doing away with justice. It means bringing an unconditional love to it. 
when the guy shot Pope John Paul, Pope John Paul visited him in the jail. He didn't release him. The guy would have gone back out and shot him. But he forgave him. Are you all following? So the real question for all of us is, can we pursue justice, but in a way that gets rid of ourselves so that we're bringing love to it? I'm trusting that everybody knows how hard that is. So when I hear people talking about unconditional love, I don't think that means do away with all conditions or laws. It does mean when you're enforcing the law, when you try to work for justice, you bring an unconditional love to it. There's no way to do that without getting rid of ourselves. So this chapter, to me, is wonderful because Ishmael has reached a point where he realizes no matter what happens to him, he may go down when he's innocent and doesn't deserve it. And, you know, so it's a wonderful. Once again, here's an example of linked analogies, that he's looking at a rope and a condition that he and Ish, or, uh, Queequeg are in together. You know, Queequeg's down there. If Queequeg goes down, he carries Ishmael with him. Um, but here's an, an example of a LinkedIn alley. Here's a rope and a relationship between two men at a job. And he's finding a larger meaning that applies to our whole life. So over and over and over again, he's helping us to see the depths of meaning everywhere around us. Life gets richer in Ishmael's mind. He sees more... I, I mean, speaking for myself now, I rem the impact that this had on me was tremendous. I started flying after that. <laughs> and up until that point, I was not going to fly. If I was going to die, it was going to be in my hands. But I'm going to die because of some, something another jerk does. And I think that is so funny because I've always been exactly the opposite of flying. I love the surrender. There is nothing... You can do. <laughs> okay, hold on to these lines. Therefore I saw that here was a sort of interregnum in providence, for its even-handed equity never could have sanctioned so gross, and nobody could have done that. Yet still farther, further pondering, you know, just hold on to this, it's lovely, that another's mistake or misfortune might plunge innocent me into unmerited disaster and death. Part of the beauty of the Catholic Church is that you know, the, the, every Mass starts with an act of contrition. We're acknowledging that there's something wrong with us. We're all in sin, all of us. The question is, how do we, how do we work for justice and bring love? And it's, I'm hoping everybody sees how hard that is. And how, what a wonderful thing Melville has given us in this book, because he's showing us a rich world right at that point of crisis, right when the modern world is starting and we're facing the idiocy of what's going on in our world today. Why isn't this taught in schools this way? Sorry? Why isn't this taught in high school this way? Um, oh, God. You know, because the world is so much like this. And if, if I had heard it this way, because I don't feel I'm so Yeah, but I don't, you know, I mean, I had, I, I was fort and really, chair, really, I mean, my answer to that is, and I'm saying this honestly, because I've been in education all my life and have grieved about it. I've been at several schools. Um, not a lot of teachers read literature well. You guys take a look at your own age. I mean, you're, you've had decent Catholic education, most of you. How many of you are, I, I, I'm writing a paper right now where I'm expressing a serious concern about the way our church catechizes, because I don't think it's doing the job. We're in a modern world. We cannot go back to the way things were done 100 years ago, to the way the sacred was presented to us. 
um, we've, got to, we've got to find the sacred in a world in which it doesn't exist. Our catechists prepared to do that. How many people can read Moby Dick in this kind of depth? And, and worse, if you take a class today on Moby Dick, God, in the, the chapter there, I mean the, the essay that's in the back that I've wrote that they published here, I'm taking on a feminist who's reading Moby Dick in terms of her, she's going to look at Moby Dick and impose her theory of what Moby Dick is about because she's got this theory about feminism. Marx, a Marxist critic, is going to read Moby Dick and impose a Marxist reading. Freud is, Freudian is, they're all going to see their own ideas. They're going to see what's there. And I told you, the editor of the um, Norton Critical Anthology, which is probably the most important academic journal, he says it's all about this inscrutable mystery. Can't make any sense of it. God. That's the last thing that I would say. Is there a mystery at the end? A huge one. Is it inscrutable? Absolutely not. This whole book is full of meaning. Can we read it? How many people? I couldn't have read it like this when I started. There's no way I could have. I remember saying that to you. The first time I read the Iliad, I God. Now, and every year it gets deeper. I mean, every year that I've read it, it gets deeper and deeper. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that. You know, because one of the beauties of this book is we've got a man, we've got two men who are nothing but thinkers, Ahab and Ishmael. Ahab never stops thinking, never. But his thoughts, one-dimensional. Yeah, in one direction. He's obsessed with doing this one thing. Ishmael um, stands in wonder, he's open, he receives, he learns. Um, he's not proud, he's, um, he's learning. You know, he's thinking. So we're getting two images, and it's, they're both on the modern world. I mean, you know, the, I, mean I, I don't want to go back to my... But one of the things I was arguing in my book is that with Dante, the Christian Middle Ages stopped. That's just before the Reformation. I mean, it's a century, but it... And Dante, for Dante, being is still good. Nature's good. Creator was good. It's goodness there. Virgil helps him see it. Beatrice helps him see it. With the Reformation, nature turns dark. Um, Ishmael is returning us to being. He's taking us back where Dante would have begun. Dante would have begun with being and gone to God. Is that clear? Dante would have begun with being. All things are good. He read Boethius. He knew Boethius. All things are good. So he can learn from everything. But it's because all things, is, all things are good. All things are intelligible. Stones, stones talk. Everything has meaning. Once the Reformation comes and, and nature's depraved, nothing has meaning. It's all dark. Ishmael is returning us. He's showing us there's this great meaning to everything in the world. Do we see it? Are we open? Do we meditate on it? That's why I'm saying the action of these two is so crucial. It's to see there's two actions in conflict. Ahab is to get even. Ishmael is to learn. To, 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 to live day by day in wonder. To be open, to see what's there.
I'm going to shorten this class today. I owe you your turn to In chapter 81, I'm just going to touch on it, don't go there. In chapter 81, the Pequod meets the Virgin. So it's another gam, and what happens um, is that the two crews go after a whale, and the um, Pequod crew realizes that the whale is not a good whale, and they let it go, and the Virgin crew goes after it. And he's showing us a difference between how important experience is on the one hand and inexperience on the other. So we've got several gams now, remember? Hold them in mind. Because every one of them is showing something about ourselves and the way that we stand to mystery. And we're watching, so far we've been given these various gams in the way they look at things, okay? Um, so 81 is on the um, on uh, the virgin. Um, remember, the virgin is out of oil. All these things, it's really important to pay attention. It's out of oil, so it's not frugal, it's not taking care of itself, and it goes after a whale um, um, in a way that shows how foolish they are. Okay. Now, I just want to touch on something here. In chapter 82, um, <laughs> Ishmael does a strange thing because he's been showing us how vicious the nature of whaling is, but here he talks about the honor and glory of whaling. He says on the first page, the gallant Perseus, a son of Jupiter, was the first whaleman to the eternal honor of our calling, be it said, that the first whale attacked by our brotherhood was not killed with any sordid intent. Those were nightly days of our profession when we only bore arms to succor the distressed, not to fill men's lamp feeders. Everyone knows the fine story of Perseus. So, he's making clear that, um, that America has committed itself to exploiting. That there was a time when people set out to do something to, to help each other. What's the motive behind the Pequod's shipping? What do we learn from um, Bildad and Peleg? Make a buck. Make a buck. More than. Because remember, it wasn't only to make a buck. I mean, that's it. Because they, they want to profit. Because that whole New England culture is turned from God to making, you know, we saw it. Mrs. Hussey wants to, she doesn't care about Quika's life, she wants her door. We went through it all. Outside of Coffin's bar is, um, what's the, in the gutter? Help me here. Lazarus. Lazarus, thanks. Lazarus in the gutter. Remember, every one of the episodes it revealed that there was this cupidity, this wanting money and comfort and wealth, okay? Here, He's saying, there was a time, there were those nightly days of our profession when we only bore arms to succor the distressed and not to fill men's lamp feeders. Everyone knows the fight, so he goes on. And he gives examples of all these noble, St. George with the dragon, Perseus, these heroes of the ancient world. 83, 
Reference is made to the historical story of Jonah and the whale in the preceding chapter because he talked about Jonah as one of those great heroes. Now some Nantucketers rather distrust this historical story of Jonah and the whale, but there were some skeptical Greeks and Romans who standing out from the Orthodox pagans of their time equally doubted the story of Hercules and the whale. So what he does is, <coughs> is he shows that um, modern scientists are going to deny the Jonah story. And they do it on scientific, a scientific basis. They'll say, no human being could exist in, in a whale and no human being could be shot up through the, 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 the hole where the sprout comes up because it would poison you. It would, you know, the chemicals would eat you away. So all they're doing, science, is disproving this and showing Another, we did this with, uh, with our apologetics section. Modern science will do all it can to explain this stuff away because it doesn't believe in miracles. If you start with the assumption that there are no miracles, that's the way you're going to read things. So here, Ishmael is doing all he can to show that there was a nobility to things once before this commercial republic took over the way it has. And he's recalling us to the Jonah story. I only want to call this to mind because it's here that he, he will try to give an account to make it easier for us to accept the Jonah story, even though he knows it's hard to accept. He doesn't make an argument for faith, but he's, he's, he's laying it out in a way that makes it easier for us to not just dismiss it because it's not scientific. And I want to end tonight... Go to 87. So, to this point in our story, I think it's safe to say that Moby Dick is a masculine epic. It's about it belongs to the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Divine Comedy is a turn because Dante is the least male heroic, you know, of the figures that we looked at. He, remember, he keeps passing out and crying and doing all these things. So, but the early pagan epics saw that there was something in man capable of doing great things. So Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas were our images. Perseus, Jonah here is being treated as a noble person. The enterprise is masculine. It takes machines and power to bring down a whale. So everything about it is masculine. There's nothing nurturing going on. If everybody can trust me on this for a minute, okay? It's a, it's a, it's a masculine enterprise. It's, it's, it's conceived in terms of power. Mastering nature, okay? And then um, we get after these chapters on the Jonah story um, regarded and uh, looked back on. We get this on, on 87. They're going after these whales. Um, and in the middle of the chapter, <coughs> um, this is what takes place. <coughs> on my page, is 450. It's in the middle of the Grand Armada. Though many of the whales, as has been said, were in violent motion, yet it's to be observed that as a whole, the herd neither advanced nor retreated. Um,
We're going to learn in a couple of chapters that whales tend to group themselves in two ways. There, t there tends to be a bull whale um, in the center of a lot of female whales or lots of bull whales who are on their own. If the bull whale dies, then somebody else has to take his place. Um, but the bull whales will fight among themselves and, um, and the main bull who has the female whales around him will, um, um, will come to their defense, the women. So once, and the shark, the shark um, episode, remember when the sharks devoured? I mean, it was, they, they were viciously eating the whales. And remember when Stubb was trying to have his dinner and, and the cook said, he wished the sharks would, would eat Stubb because Stubb was making life miserable for him. Um, and remember that it got so vicious that they were turning around on their own tails, eating their tails and eating the excrement. That's one of the finest images I think Melville has of what a capitalistic world does. It feeds on itself. It produces this stuff and then it feeds on it. Um, it. It keeps proliferating things so that we can keep eating and adding. Um, but love is an end in itself. Love means you don't have to keep doing something for something else. You love because it's a good in itself. Okay. Here in the middle of the Grand Armada, this is what takes place. Um, yet it's to be observed that as a whole the herd neither advanced nor retreated, but collectively remained in one place. As is customary in those cases, the boats at once separated, each making for some one lone whale. In about three minutes' time, Queequeg's harpoon was flung. The stricken fish darted, blinding spray in our faces, and then running away with um, us like light, steered straight for the heart of the herd. Though such a movement in the point of the hole struck under such circumstances is in no wise unprecedented, and indeed is almost always more or less anticipated, yet does it present one of the more perilous vicissitudes of the fishery. For as the swift monster drags you deeper and deeper into the frantic shoal, you bid adieu to circumspect life and only exist in a delirious throb. You know, we've been warned again and again by Quika, or I mean Ishmael. Remember, he, after the first lowering, he went down to make out his whale because he realized um, how dangerous it was. Now he's saying the danger is even greater because once a whale takes you into the center of that, you're caught in all this confusion. Um, they very often attach um, um, kegs to the lines to slow the whales down. And very often when multiple harpoons are thrown, the whales or the lines begin to intertwine. And with the harpoons connected, they can flail about and people can get injured. Okay. Go down, it's a couple of paragraphs on my, it's on my page um, 452. It had been next to impossible to dart these drugged harpoons were it not that as we advanced into the herd, our whales weigh greatly diminished. Moreover, that as we went still further and further from the circumference of commotion, the direful disorders seemed waning. So that when at last the jerking harpoon drew out and the towing whales sideways vanished, then with the tapering force of the parting momentum, we glided between two whales into the innermost heart of the shoal, as if from some mountain torrent we had slid into a serene valley lake. 
Here the storms in the roaring glens between the outermost whales were heard but not felt. In this um, central expanse, the sea presented that smooth satin-like surface called a sleek, produced by the subtle moisture thrown off by the whale in his more quiet moods. Yes, we were in that now enchanted calm which they say lurks at the heart of every commotion, and still in the distance, we beheld tumults of the outer concentric, circle, concentric circles and saw successive pods of whales, eight or ten in each, swiftly going round and round like multiplied spans of horses in a ring. So closely shoulder to shoulder that a titanic circus rider might easily have overarched the middle ones and so have gone round on their backs. Owing to the density of the crowd of reposing whales more immediately surrounding the embayed axis of the herd, no possible chance of escape was at present afforded us. We must, we must watch for a breach in the living wall that hemmed us. Keeping at the center of the lake, we were occasionally visited by a small tame cows and calves, the women and children of this um, um, routed host. Go down a few lines. At any rate, though indeed such a test at such a time might be deceptive, spoutings might be discovered from our low boat that seemed playing up almost from the rim of the horizon. They could see the other whales, the spoutings from them. As if the wide extent of the herd had hitherto prevented them from learning the precise cause of its stopping or possibly being so young, unsophisticated, in every way innocent and inexperienced, however it might have been, these smaller whales now and then visiting our calm boat from the margin of the lake evinced a wondrous fearlessness and conduct. They would come right up to the boat. Like household dogs, they came snuffing around us right up to our gunwales, touching them. Queequig patted their foreheads. Starbuck scratched their backs with his lance, but fearful of the consequences for the time refrained from darting it. Go down. For suspended in those watery vaults floated the forms of the nursing mothers of the whales and those that by their enormous girth seemed shortly to become mothers. The lake, as I have hinted, was to a considerable depth exceedingly transparent and as human infants, while suckling, will still calmly and fixedly gaze away from the breast as if leading two different lives at the same time, while yet drawing mortal nourishment be still spiritually feasting upon some unearthly reminiscence, even so did the young of these whales seem looking up towards us, but not at us as if we were but a bit of gulf weed in the newborn sight. Floating on their sides, mothers seemed quietly eyeing us, one of these little infants that from certain queer tokens seemed hardly a day old, might have measured some 14 feet in length, some six feet in girth. He was a little frisky though. Um, where does he say? Go down a few lines. Thus, though surrounded by circle upon circle of consternations and affright, these inscrutable creatures at the center freely and fearlessly indulge in all peaceful concerns, yea, serenely reveled in dalliance and delight. But even so, amid the tornadoed Atlantic, the tornadoed Atlantic of my being, do I myself still forever centrally disport in mute calm, and while ponderous planets of unwaning woe resolve around, revolve around me, deep down and deep in land, there I still bathe me in eternal mildness, mildness of joy. There again is a linked analogy. 
in the center of all this commotion with all this killing, harpooning, stabbing, blood, at the center of it is this feminine principle. So we've seen, so the sharks were attacking because somebody was attacked and gave off blood. The, these are the mother whales nursing their children. It's instinctive, it's natural. So I think this is one of the strongest images Melville gives us of something nurturing in our nature. Set this against the Protestant worldview that everything is corrupt. Couldn't be more feminine, couldn't be more nurturing, and it awake, it reminds Ishmael of the joy that is at the center of his soul. And you, we know how often it gets darkened by what's going on in the world. But he's saying, torpedoed this Atlantic with all this trouble, there he knows that there's something at the center of his being that is meant to be joyful. So look again what Ishmael's doing or what Melville's doing. In this dark world which, in which everybody thinks nature is corrupt, Melville's giving us an image of something good and nurturing and feminine. Okay. Um, we're going to finish this check. He's going to look at fast and loose fish, fish that are attached to a boat and um, and fish that are loose, that are free for anybody to get. It, he's using it as a legal term because because he's going to look at legality. But let me stop here. Um, we'll put the gams together next week. When we meet, I want to look at all the gams. I'm going to put them all together. So if you can, if you haven't read them, look at the gams. Single them out. Put them together. Draw a circle. Put them around in a circle. And ask yourself, what each of them reveals about the mystery at the center of this life. For us, at the center of the life would be Christ. Okay? This is a Christian world. It's not an image of Christ, it's an image of a whale. It is, it is the most powerful creature on earth, the largest, most powerful. It can swamp a boat, a ship. But it's also helpless, you know, against these men and what they do with their machinery. So. Next week I want to look at um, the, the gams, I want to put them together, and if we can get to it, I, I have to look at the chapters, I'm not, I want to look at the triworks. It's the machine where everything gets boiled down because the men are going to look into it and they're going to see evil. So we're moving towards the end. Signs are going to be given to Ahab everywhere to pull back, to turn around. He's going to do everything he can to take control of that ship on his own power to see this through, okay? So we'll take those up next week. But any questions about what we've looked at tonight? The, um, the Don't forget the monkey rope. Um, and um, the Grand Armada, those are really important chapters. And the Sphinx, the Sphinx and the linked analogies. Hold on to those notions. It's a good question. We know, it's, it actually comes in this section. He, when he's talking about the whales, he talks about a right whale and a left whale, or a, or a sperm whale and a right whale. He did it before. He, he's identified whales with Descartes, 
with Plato, with Locke. Here he's done it with Locke and Spinoza. He knew those philosophies, or he couldn't criticize them, because he says, in fact, in one place, in one of the chapters here that we didn't go into today, he says one of the best things you could do is throw all these books away because these men lived in their heads too much. <laughs> but he knew them, or he couldn't have made that critique. He knew Plato was, was too much in his head, say, in a way that Aristotle wasn't. Same with, same with uh, Kant. Locke was much more of an empiricist that what was real is the tangible world. He knew those men. He was, so he was well-read, deeply well-read. And we know from the theology, the issues that um, Ahab's dealing with, that he knew the Christian theology. All the allusions to Christ, the Pope, um, baptism, remember when he, when he joins them in together. We're going to see another rite. In fact, towards the end, he's going he's to perform a, what's the word, the, the Antichrist, the black, the black mass sort of ritual. He knew that stuff inside out. He and, he and Hawthorne grew up in a Christian world. They're both troubled with it. There's something wrong with this Christianity. It's failing badly. So it's formed them, it's shaped them. They couldn't write about it this way. He certainly couldn't have created a character like Ahab because Ahab has been wounded badly by the theology, the theologies that he was raised under. Um, mystery, superstition, you know. He's looking at all of it and he, and he brings a depth to it that who of us can claim that kind of reading, you know? Um, I mean, I've read a lot of those philosophers. I haven't read them as deeply as he would, and, and I don't have Melville's mind. He had extraordinary mind. I do well to keep up with him here. But I've read, I mean, the, the, I, I know the major philosophers fairly well. Um, he's, 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 He's a deep thinker, He's, and, he and, and both of them, remember what I said, um, what both of them did not like about the transcendentalists, that's that new movement, it's a part of the revolution going on at that time. Emerson, who's the, probably the most, one of the most important figures at that time, wrote, wrote the essay Self-Reliance and did away with the Trinity and was a Harvard, you know, taught at Harvard and he didn't like those men because he said they all they all idealize things. What he and Melville had in common is what they called the brotherhood of sin. That all of us are in sin. He could not have gone to the depths he did if he didn't, hadn't felt that. Any questions about any of this? Any, no, any comments on the Grand Armada? What did you guys think of the Grand Armada chapter? My, what I linked into, the worst, my world, the big world gets you dwell on your grandchildren and those things and it was kind of like that with with the nursing mother whales and all yeah, that yeah. all this other stuff is ugly yeah yeah and notice that they're at the center of the circle i mean where they should be protected you know they're giving birth think about the kind i mean i when you when you look at what's going on in this book and set it against the theology that everything's corrupt at the center of this world are these um, nursing mother whales feeding their infants and they're being protected by the formation of it. That's all instinctive. It's inbred in them. There's a goodness to what they're doing that they want to protect. It's in nature. 
I mean, the ironies of this book just keep deepening. The more you look at it, it's just, you know, you're looking back at 19th century Christianity and wondering, and, or look at it today with all the horror stuff that, you know, that comes out in films. Americans feed on horror stuff. We are a violent country. We are a very violent country. We present ourselves as being well-educated. Underneath the surface, there's a lot of violence. Any? Karen, what question? I was just asking, is everything being corrupt? The theology of that. Is that a spoken theology? Sorry? Is that a spoken theology among Articulated, spoken? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't believe in free will. It's set out. The sacraments are, you know, Luther gets rid of half of them. All these notions are articulated, they're formulated, they, uh, they're publicized so that the influence is carry, carrying. England becomes half Protestant under the influence of Luther and Calvin. You know, and mass education, mass printing is going on. The, the masses are reading how well they're understanding the implications of these theologies. Think about that. You know, it, um, these texts are being made available to everybody. They're religious in character. The printing press is new. Everybody's reading. Nobody's guiding them. Look at Stubb as a reader of the Bible. Huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, everybody's got different. I mean, if you look at the Reformation's thinkers, you've got probably six or seven or eight that are major thinkers, and they differ with each other. They contradict each other. That didn't bother them. So the theology is spreading. It's proliferating. It's being printed. It's influencing people. There are movements. You know, revolutions are going on. And a century later, we've got or a century and a half later, we've got this. Hmm? Oh, that was so good. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thanks. Somebody needs to wake me up. Here, I'll let you get it. Thanks. Thank you for offering. She said one time she was going to give it to you. She was afraid to leave his time. 